Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 238. We'll conclude the book of First Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 28 and 29, and follow with some thoughts about softness as a relative term. The chronicler is wrapping up David's monarchy with a parting fit for a king, assembling, quote, all the officers of Israel, the officers of the tribes, and the officers of the orders ministering to the king, and the officers of the thousands, and the officers of the hundreds, and the officers of all the property and livestock of the king, and his sons with the eunuchs and the warriors, every valiant warrior. Once all gathered in Jerusalem, David, quote, rose on his feet and said that he always wanted to build, quote, a resting house for the Ark of Adonai's covenant and as a footstool for the feet of our God. But as we've heard before, God didn't want David to do it. Blah, blah, blah. So David's son, his heir Shlomo, will be charged with the project. Quote, it is he who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him for me as a son, and I will be a father to him, and I will make his kingship stand firm forever if he holds strong to do my commands and my laws as on this day. Very nice. See what David did there while announcing the massive sacred public works project? He's also anointed an heir and warned him to stay on the straight and narrow. I see what you did there. David also hands over the plans for the new temple. Quote, the plan of the entrance hall and the plan for the house and its storerooms and its upper chambers and its inner rooms and the space for the ark covering and the plan for all that was in the mind of his people for the courts of the house of Adonai and for all the chambers around the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries of the consecrated gifts, as well as an action plan for the sacred bureaucracy and building management. Chapter 29 continues with the parting, with more remarks from David about his heir Shlomo, a quote, untried lad who is in need of support for the Great Temple Project, and about his efforts to amass wealth and materials for the temple, the one he wasn't allowed to build. Blah, blah, blah. And he puts out a call to those assembled to pitch in as well, and well, who can say no to the dying king? Quote, and the officers of the patriarchal houses and the officers of the tribes of Israel and the officers of the thousands and the, of the hundreds answered the call for the king's task. And they gave 5,000 talents of gold and 10,000 drachmas and 10,000 talents of silver and 10,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of iron for the work of the house of God. And whoever had with him gemstones gave them to the treasury of the house of Adonai through Yechiel the Gershonite. And the people rejoiced for having answered the call, for with a whole heart they answered the call to Adonai, and King David too greatly rejoiced. At which point David thanks God for, quote, Yours, O Adonai, is the greatness and the might and the splendor and the triumph and the grandeur, indeed, all in the heavens and on the earth. He then turns to those assembled and tells them, quote, Bless Adonai your God, and all the assembly blessed Adonai, God of their fathers, and did obeisance and bowed down to Adonai and to the king. Near offerings are then near offered, and quote, They made Solomon, son of David, king a second time, and anointed him to Adonai as ruler and Sadok as priest. And Solomon sat on the throne of Adonai as king instead of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. As this chapter and this book of First Chronicle winds down, so too does David with a summation of his monarchy. Quote, 
And David, son of Jesse, had been king over all Israel, and the time that he was king over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he was king in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he was king 33 years. And he died in ripe old age, sated with days, wealth, and honor, and Solomon his son was king in his stead. And the acts of King David early and late are written down in the records of Samuel the seer, and in the records of Nathan the prophet, and in the records of Gad the visionary, with all his kingship and his valor, and the times that passed over him, and over all Israel, and over all the kingdoms of the lands. I didn't watch Succession. Although folks continue to rave about it, I don't care enough about the ups and downs of the super rich to want to invest that kind of time, even if Sarah Snook and Hyam Abbas are amazing in it. I know Sarah Snook from the 2020 film American Pickle, where she played Sarah Greenbaum, who in flawless Yiddish wished one day to be so rich she could afford her own tombstone. And I know Hyam Abbas from the ongoing comedy series Rami as the well-meaning but unfiltered Misa, mother of the eponymous Phil's son. Anyway, it seems that succession is part of the cultural zeitgeist these days, but it's also a lived reality for such companies as McCain Foods and Gucci, where strife ensued over the question of who should take over. In the case of McCain Foods, the food processor was founded by Canadian brothers Wallace and Harrison McCain, who hailed from Florenceville, New Brunswick. When the time came to decide who would run the company, Wallace thought his son Michael and his Ivy League business degree should take over. Harrison and his children disagreed. They wanted an outside hire. Harrison prevailed, but Wallace didn't take that sitting down. He left McCain to take over rival company Maple Leaf Foods. In the case of Gucci... Father, son, and house of Gucci. The founding father, Guccio Gucci, built the business selling handbags and luggage, and when he died in 1953, his eldest son, Aldo, took over. He expanded the business, made the name an international brand. But when his son, Paolo, wanted to launch a new fashion line, the father said no. This didn't stop Paolo, who launched it anyway, behind his father's back, and this got him fired and exiled from the family business. And yet, Paolo persisted. He ratted out his father to the tax authorities, sending Aldo to prison. He also plotted with his cousin Maurizio to take over the company. They succeeded, but nearly ran the business into the ground. Eventually, they were both forced out after a takeover. There are countless other examples from history where the matter of succession leaves a whole country, a whole civilization up in the air, and sometimes an untried lad or lass finds themselves in the right place at the right time or not. Let's start with the 13th ruler of Egypt's Ptolemaic dynasty, aptly named Ptolemy XIII, who came to power at the ripe age of 12 in 51 BCE. His rule brought him into contact with some folks most of us in the 21st century have surely heard of, namely his sister Cleopatra, whom he married according to Egyptian custom, but he didn't like all the attention that she was getting, so three years into his reign, he had her forcibly expelled from Egypt. He threw his support behind the Roman general Pompey, who was in a power struggle with Julius Caesar. And when Pompey was defeated and came to Egypt to seek refuge, Ptolemy XIII had him murdered. This was supposed to be a present to Caesar, but instead Caesar forced him to reconcile with his sister Cleopatra. 
Ptolemy did, but bided his time until he could organize a revolt against Rome, which failed and resulted in not only his death, but the burning of the Library of Alexandria, the largest storehouse of knowledge in the ancient world. Thanks a lot, kid. Mary Stuart, who's better known as Mary Queen of Scots, ruled as queen of two separate nations before she was 18 years old. Mary became Queen of Scotland after her father died only six days after her birth in 1542. She was clearly too young to rule, but the infant queen had an important diplomatic function. King Henry VIII wanted to unite Scotland and England, so he proposed a future marriage between Mary and his son Edward. The Scottish Parliament rejected that offer, which angered the English king, who soon invaded Scotland to force the marriage. The infant Mary had to be hidden in various castles and eventually spirited away to France, where at 16 she married Francis II and briefly ruled as Queen of France after he ascended the throne. Francis died in 1561, and Mary, a 19-year-old widow, returned to Scotland to resume her duties as queen. She remarried twice as an adult, but a 1567 uprising forced her to abdicate the Scottish throne and flee to England, where she was imprisoned for nearly 19 years. And now we present the first episode of a new radio drama series, The Death of Mary, Queen of Scots. Part 1, The Beginning. You are Mary, Queen of Scots. Oh yeah, she was executed for her unwitting role in a plot to overthrow Queen Elizabeth I. Oops. And here's one last story about an untried lad, Baldwin IV, who as a boy of 16 saved Jerusalem from capture by Tzalah Hadin and the Ayyubids and did it while suffering from a debilitating disease. Following the death of his father, Amalric, from dysentery, the high court convened to discuss the succession. Though Baldwin had not yet been officially diagnosed with leprosy, the high court was aware of the boy's medical condition, but there really was no viable alternative. Baldwin was the king's only son, and of his sisters, Sibylla was an unmarried adolescent and Isabella was only two years old. So after three days of deliberations, the high court settled on Baldwin with the expectation that a husband would be found for Sibylla and he would succeed Baldwin if Baldwin succumbed to leprosy. Well, not only did Baldwin come down with a disease, the crusader kingdom over which he reigned soon came under attack from Tzalach Baldwin could not walk unsupported or use his hands from 1183, and due to the inability to blink, his corneas dried up and he became blind. He nevertheless led his forces against Tzalach and defeated him on a number of occasions, leading to a brief peace agreement. He returned to Jerusalem a hero, but finally died in 1185 at the age of 23. And two years later, Tzalach would win a decisive victory at the Battle of Hattin and effectively end the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. <laughs> so it seems that perhaps Shlomo is in good company. David refers to his son, Shlomo, the new king, as an untried lad. Earlier in chapter 22, David refers to Shlomo as a tender lad. But as we'll see starting in the chapters of 2 Chronicles, Shlomo may be laddish, but he's anything but untried. I would have trotted out our usual segment where the chronicler... You can go your own way. Go your own way. 
But I mean, where does the segment end and the episode begin? It's too much. The Chronicler, you know, skips over all the juicy bits with the now dead king where as a young freebooter, he served the Philistine king Agag, or when he played the madman having fits to save himself from the selfsame Philistines, or as we discussed earlier, how he took Batsheva and had her husband Uriah murdered, or how, and this is especially relevant here, there's no mention at all of how Natan the prophet schemed with Batsheva to ensure Shlomo's selection as heir. Nowhere in this book is the name Avshalom mentioned, or the domestic tumult after his sister Tamar was raped by their brother Amnon, or Avshalom's successful uprising against his father, or that of the impatient Adonia. And there's no mention at all of how David on his deathbed charges Shlomo with setting the score with all of David's enemies. We are presented here with the image of Shlomo as an untried lad, an innocent. 13th century Provencal commentator Radak posits Shlomo as being 12 years old when his father dies, and he bases this on the sources, listing all the malfeasance and mayhem in the family as milestones. The rape of Tamar happens when he was born. Avshalom waits two years to avenge his sister by killing his sister's rapist and flees to Geshur after the massacre, remaining there for three years, which makes Shlomo five. Then Avshalom sits in Jerusalem, scheming against his father for two years before launching his coup. Then there's a famine for three years, which puts Shlomo at ten. Then the following year, David conducts his notorious census, which lasts nine months, putting Shlomo at eleven. And then the following year, David dies. Except the Shlomo we read about in 1 Kings, as I said before, is anything but untried. He's careful, he's bold, he's canny. An untried lad could not have dispatched his rivals so quickly and effectively. Adonia, his brother. I want that son of a bitch dead. Yoav, his father's chief of staff and general. I want you to get this fuck where he breathes. I want you to find this Nancy boy, Elliot Ness. I want him dead. Eviatar, the high priest. I want his family dead. And finally, Shaul loyalist Shimi ben Gera. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. But perhaps a different translation can offer up a different understanding. Alter and others render Na'ar Verach as untried lad, as does Safaria. But Rach has other meanings, most notably soft, which is a relative term. There's no objective measure of what soft is. It's simply something less hard. And depending on what you're used to, something I would regard as hard might be soft to you. In 2 Samuel, during a tumultuous time between the houses of David and Shaul, when David was protesting his innocence in the revenge killing of Avner ben Ner, Shaul's chief of staff and general, he says, quote, You must know that a commander and a great man has fallen this day in Israel, and I am gentle and just anointed king, and these sons of Tsruya are too hard for me. May Adonai pay back the evildoer according to his evil. There, David also uses the word rach, rendered there as gentle. Safaria renders it as weak. Again, these are relative terms with David positioning himself in relation to someone else. So, gentler than who? The sons of Tsruya, of which Yoav is the eldest, who schemed and murdered the great man Avner. David may be a killer, but he's not that kind of killer. I never killed anybody that didn't deserve it. And so perhaps what David is trying to express here is that his son, Shlomo, is not as hard as he is. He may be a canny schemer, but Shlomo is not as hands-on murderous as David. And for this task, David says, Shlomo might need some help. But as we see in 1 Kings, Shlomo can handle himself just fine. Hey!
If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning find this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 239, when we begin the final book of the Tanakh, 2 Chronicles, chapters 1 through 3.